This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. The basic compass is just you take your magnetic rock and you tie it to a string, and the string lets the rock rotate freely, the rock points where it's magnetic north. That's your compass. And tying a rock to a string <laughs> took us over a thousand years to figure out, which is just embarrassing <laughs> for humanity. You're listening to a science focused podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Jason Goodger, Commissioning Editor at BBC Focus magazine. If your time machine broke down, leaving you stranded in the past, would you be able to fix it? It's probably not a question many of us would ask ourselves, but it's something author Ryan North has always worried about. He can explain how cool computers are, but if someone in the Middle Ages asked him how to make one, he'd be stumped. He decided to remedy this by finding out how to recreate modern civilization from scratch. He's explained it all in his new book, How to Invent Everything, a survival guide for the stranded time traveller. From written and spoken language through to agriculture, the printing press and modern birth control, it's a practical guide on how to rebuild civilization. We're chatting to him about where to start and why it took us so long the first time around. Here's Helen Glenny editorial assistant at BBC Focus magazine, talking to Ryan North. So, Ryan, this book has got a really fun premise. So can you just set it up for us? Under what conditions would someone be using this book? Sure, thank you. Uh, So the premise is it is a repair guide for a time machine. And on the first couple pages, it says, look, uh, time machines are actually the most complicated machines humans have ever made, ever. So there's no user serviceable parts inside. If you're stuck in the past and your time machine's broken, you're not going to fix the time machine. But we can help you bring the future back to you by explaining how to, it's actually easier to explain how to reinvent civilization from scratch in any time period. So that does that for the rest of the book. And then it's up to you to rebuild society. So reinventing civilization from scratch, this is everything from where does it start? Where does it finish? What does this encompass? Oh, gosh. It it starts with very basic. Uh, you need language, numbers, the scientific method, and finishes with instructions to build a working computer. So it, it runs the gamut. <laughs> there's there's farming in the middle there, agriculture, um, birth control, all sorts of technologies you need for a uh, industrial civilization. So let's say we time traveled and we got stranded somewhere between 200,000 BCE and 50,000 BCE, which is a time that you talk about as being very significant. Can you explain why that's so significant? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so that's around 200,000 BCE is when we start seeing anatomically modern humans, which are humans whose, whose bodies look like ours. They're, they're, they're a match for us. And then around 50,000 BCE, you get behaviorally modern humans, which are humans who start behaving like us. They're burying their dead. They're creating art. They're wearing jewelry, stuff like that. And there's this huge gap of time where we're not really sure what changed to make us behaviorally modern. One of the theories is that 
we finally invented language for ourselves. We started talking to each other. And it sounds like a, a minor thing, but language is actually <laughs> really hard to invent. We've only done it uh, a couple times in history. And one of the challenges is that it's a technology that only makes sense when someone else also has it, right? Like you need for a language to be useful, you have to speak to someone else. So to invent it, you have to like invent the language and then also be a teacher who can teach it to someone else before it has any use. And so this idea of uh, language being a technology, I think is really cool because it is, it is something that you don't get for free. Like we, we invented it for ourselves to use. And it's such a powerful technology because it's what allows ideas to survive outside the host, <laughs> lets you send information that can last longer than the human body lasts. And it's, it's something we take so for granted, but it's so fundamental to, to everything we do. So if you're in that time period, just teaching the humans their language, you can be the most influential person in human history. So go do that. <laughs> Give every civilization on earth a 100,000 year head start. So how would you go about inventing language? Presumably this time traveler already knows a language, has a language that they can speak. How do you start teaching it to people? Well, there's uh, there's interesting results that we've we've got that show that we're really good at learning language before puberty. And if you haven't been exposed to language after that point, it becomes really, really hard to, to learn it from scratch. So if you did find yourself in the past and wanted to start communicating with people, one of the easiest way to do it on the longer term is to teach children, uh, befriend local humans and start talking to their children. And you'll be able to communicate with them a lot faster than you will with with the adult humans. And I say language, you can still communicate, right? Like we can communicate with dogs. There's a body language. There's emotions you can convey. But complicated thought, concrete thought, you only really get with with the precision of language. And so for that, you may want to start with the children and build up from there. Okay, so you talk about five fundamental technologies that our civilization is founded on, and that spoken language is one of them. Can you just explain the other four? Yeah, uh, written language is the next, and it's they're they're related, obviously, but they're also very different. Written language, when you look at it objectively, this is the technology that lets you ship information, you know, around the world for no more expense than it costs to ship grain. Like it, it turns ideas into solid objects like books you can just send to people, which is really incredible. Uh, so you've got written language, you've got, uh, I call them non-sucky numbers, <laughs> a numerical system that uh, is intuitive and makes sense and took us a long time to figure that out too. Um, and then it's the scientific method, which is the way to produce future knowledge. Is that five? What am I missing? Uh, <laughs> you are, the last one's calorie surplus. Oh, yes, of course. Calorie <laughs> surplus. The author of the book definitely knows what he wrote. <laughs> Uh, calorie surplus is um, basically producing more food than you eat, which is the foundation of any uh, civilization that has more than one person in it, which allows you to specialize. If you have someone else taking care of food production, then you're not worrying where your next meal comes from and you can freeze you up to worry about other stuff like why do apples fall from trees or why do the stars move in the sky? All these uh, questions that when you answer them lead to more questions but also lead to an industrial society uh, get unlocked by – having reliable food, having not having to worry where your next meal comes from. And it's, again, super fundamental. If you have all these things, the written language, spoken language, good sense of numbers, uh, calorie surplus, and scientific method, you're on a good foundation to produce more knowledge, more civilization. So calorie surplus sounds like 
a really enjoyable one. Um, how do we go about <laughs> doing that? Uh, well, it's there's a short term and long term. The short term is you stop hunting and gathering and you start farming. Now, uh, the problem with hunting and gathering, I mean, the, fe- the feature of hunting and gathering is it's generally pretty easy. You just walk around and find food and farming is a lot of work. You're building fences, you're taking care of animals, you're plowing fields. Like it's absolutely more work to farm than it is to hunt and gather. That said, once you have hunting, once you have farming, you have these other advantages. Like you're no longer moving around. You can start building infrastructure that lasts. You can start storing food and not having to carry it with you. So it's, it's a, it's a big change for that. But one of the things you get kind of for free when you start farming is domestication where plants and animals start changing to become more useful plants and animals to humans, which is kind of crazy, but it's, it happens almost by accident. Like if you're farming and you find, oh, you know, this grain uh, has better, larger seeds than this other grain, I'm going to plant the, the seeds from this grain that is more useful to me. You're selectively breeding grain that has larger seeds. Just by being a normal, greedy, <laughs> kind of lazy human, you're, you're producing this new type of food. And we've, we've done that throughout history so often. I mean, the, the wheat we use now can't reproduce without human involvement because we've changed it so much it only reproduces itself when farmed, which is amazing. We have dogs that we just domesticated wolves and made them more convenient and cuter to us by selectively breeding. There's this really cool experiment in uh, Russia, I believe, where they're taking foxes. They took random foxes 50 years ago and started selectively breeding them to see if they could, how quickly it'd take to produce a dog-like fox. And 20 generations in, they have they went in two directions. They made the most docile foxes and the most angry foxes. <laughs> so you have these really dog-like foxes that you can sell as pets. And in the other cages, you have these furious, like they hate humans, aggressive anti-dogs, <laughs> these mean foxes, just by selective breeding, just by picking the angriest ones and the most docile ones, the ones who will consent to be touched and the ones that hate being touched and having them breed. It's it's incredible how fast you can do this sometimes. Yeah, in 20 generations for a fox, I presume they reproduce you know, relatively early on in their life, only, what, a few years or something like that? Like about three get, years, yeah. Yeah, so you'd get through 20 generations pretty quickly. Yeah, if you were stuck in time with dogs or with wolves, you could probably get a decent dog within your lifetime, which is one of the most inspiring time travel facts I know. <laughs> you can make a dog if you put the work in. What Did you come across any other things like that that really stood out to you as like, wow, I can achieve something so important so quickly? Oh, there's there's tons. One of the things that uh, really struck me was throughout history, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as a pretty savvy bunch of pretty savvy species who knows a bunch of stuff. But if you look at when we could have invented something, when we actually did, there's usually a huge gap of time. It's just, it blows my mind. One of the ones I was looking at uh, yesterday was, we all know the idea of the canary in the coal mine, right? You have a, when you're mining, you take a bird down with you and birds have a higher metabolism. They breathe faster. And so if there's low on oxygen, if there's not enough oxygen in the mine, the canary will faint before humans do. So you can get out and escape and it saves lives. We discovered that in the 20th century. Like we'd already invented television by the time we realized we could bring canaries down to coal mines. We've been mining for thousands of years without this this literal canary in the coal mine to tell us when it was dangerous. And it's just the idea that we could have met this by taking a bird down into the mine with us, and we didn't for thousands and thousands of years, makes you wonder 
you know, if you care about the future, what else are we missing? What are the other technologies that we're just not seeing, even though we have all the parts here in front of us? The book takes us all the way through from those five fundamental five fundamental technologies, domesticating animals, inventing the printing press, all the way through to music, philosophy, and computers. Yes. What part of that do you think would be the hardest to invent? Where are we going to struggle the most? <laughs> well, the it's funny you mentioned the music one because I wanted it to be just you know if you're you're writing a book about how to reinvent society from scratch, civilization from scratch, you start to think, well, what's important in civilization? And you know, philosophy and the arts are fundamental, I believe, to any good society. You need to have music, you need to have arts. And for music, uh, one of the things that surprised me was you can teach someone how to make instruments, and that's pretty easy. And you can teach them how to read music, and that's pretty easy too. But knowing what a note sounds like is pretty hard because I can have notes on a piece of paper. You don't know, like, what, what, is that, what does a C sound like, a middle C? What's the frequency for that? And the answer is, well... You can give the actual frequency and you can produce that frequency, but it turns out all of music relies on being able to produce a certain frequency at any point in history. And so it all comes down to this, uh, basically you take a, a piece of wood or a piece of paper, whatever you can produce, and you stick it in a wheel with spokes. So when you turn the wheel, when you turn the, wheel the card gets hit and it makes a noise. If you turn the wheel fast enough, you can start producing a known frequency. And then you've got your music. So all of music relying on a card in a wheel that you produce at any point in history was, I thought, kind of crazy and kind of fun. Yeah, and also simpler than I would have expected. Yeah, a lot of stuff is simpler than you would expect, I think. I mean, the world is complicated for sure, but the basics of everything usually aren't super complicated. And that's what, that's what I loved about the book and loved about writing the book is I started writing it because I was afraid <laughs> since I was a kid of, I think about going back in time and, you know, arriving in the past and saying, guys, I'm from the future and the future is great. We have computers. And they would say, how do they work? And I'd say, I don't know, but they're great. <laughs> when you figure them out, they're going to be awesome. But just learning the basics of how everything works was the reason I wanted to write this book. And the reason I think it's so fun is that you, you get to be this more competent member of society who like understands how things work, how the stuff we take for granted around us is constructed. I think that that's that's what's so fun is that if I were sent back in time now, I would be a really competent time traveler. <laughs> so of all of the technologies that you talk about in the book, if you were sent back in time, which one would you be most excited about inventing? Oh, gosh. Um, I honestly think it would be dogs because <laughs> I love dogs so much. And it's such a the satisfaction of like working for 30 years to produce a dog and finally making one would just be incredible. Plus, they're, they're useful animals. Uh, they're great for hunting. They're the only animals that uh, follow our gaze. So if, if I'm hunting with a dog, I can glance somewhere and the dog can see where I'm glancing, which is, I mean, I, I shouldn't just spend this whole time talking about how great dogs are. <laughs> thinking about the technology. They're a really great technology. Um, another really basic one is just like, distillation is not that hard once you've worked out the principles behind it. You're just boiling water and capturing the steam. But it lets you purify liquids in a way that you couldn't before. Um, you can produce alcohol. You can purify alcohol with that. Brewing beer, I think. It seems like, oh, yeah, you know, what a fun thing to have if you're traveling the fast. Instructions for making beer. But it's a really 
good drink for calories. It, if you can make it out of uh, water that isn't uh, safe to drink, it can become safe to drink just the act of brewing with it. So it's a it's a fascinating drink that um, sort of defined a lot of civilizations in a way that we don't really think of now. We think, oh yeah, beer, that's a fun drink on a hot day. But it's like, this is a drink that can be the foundation of a civilization. <laughs> I mean, you're brewing it then for not for the the alcohol, but for the calories inside. But it's it's so fascinating the the stuff around the world that we we don't even look at, we don't even think about, but how much of an impact it had on our own history. Now, you managed to condense all of these inventions down into about a four hundred page book. Why did it take us fifty thousand years? You know, you talk about 50,000 BCE, well, more than 50,000 years. You talk about right. 50,000 BCE as being when we started behaving like modern humans and then it took us that long to get to this point. Why? Why did it take us so long? <laughs> I mean, a lot of it is uh, having the parts and not putting them together in the right order. Um, one of my, my favorite examples of that is you have uh, the ancient Greek civilization had lodestones, so like natural magnets that they saw that some rocks stuck together and they said oh that's weird we'll use that for fortune telling whatever and then you have uh thousands of years later in chinese civilization they invent the compass and that unlocks navigating the entire world and that is all you need to invent the compass is a piece of magnet a magnetic rock because the earliest compasses aren't like the compasses we're, we're familiar with we have that tiny sliver of metal balanced on a pin in a plastic case, like it's all very fancy, but the earliest compass, the basic compass is just, you take your magnetic rock and you tie it to a string and the string lets the rock rotate freely. The rock points where it's magnetic north. That's your compass. And tying a rock to a string took us over a thousand years to figure out, which is just embarrassing for humanity that it, we, we can have the parts that we need and we won't figure out the right way to put them in for thousands of years. And that's, that's a repeated story throughout our history. So I think, I mean, I'm clearly on team human. I think humans are pretty cool, <laughs> but there's definitely room to improve our timeline, to improve our history by knowing what to do when you can do it. And that goes for language, that goes for compasses, that goes for stethoscopes, like all sorts of technologies. We had the parts and we didn't put them together until it was much, much later. <laughs> So that's the delay. We, we took our time. Yeah, so you talk about the Greeks having one thing and the Chinese having something else. And now that we can communicate so freely using the internet and those sorts of things, do you think the pace of innovation is speeding up because of that? Do you think we're getting better at this process? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the two greatest resources we have are human brains and communication. And so the more that we can communicate, the more you can get the free exchange of ideas, the more you can have someone... You know, in Australia, think, oh, what if we did it this way? And I mean, that's a lot of modern science is international, right? Which is terrific. But the the main resource we have are these human brains walking around in human bodies. So I think it's it's really important for any civilization that you know you you let these human brains live to their full potential. So you you make sure everyone's fed and clothed and comfortable and has healthcare. Like the basics of keeping these brains around and happy is what unlocks everything else. You can't. I mean, the book is about building society on your own in the past, but you can't have a society with just one person and that's just a person with a lot of cool stuff. You need more than one person to have a civilization. It's important to take care of these other people. 
And have you, throughout writing the book, did you identify any other ways that we could get better at this, ways that we could do it faster, aside from just communication and keeping ourselves healthy? Um, it's communication, it's keeping yourself healthy, and it's it's a willingness to try new stuff. Like the first person to tie a rock to a string isn't necessarily expecting to invent the compass, but they do and they figure it out. And there's this um, this great quote, I forget who would, who said it, but it was making the point that in science, it's less, you less often say, Eureka, I found it. And more often you say, oh, that's weird. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> it's this willingness to sort of explore why something is different. I mean, you look at uh, penicillin, famously, you have uh, Banting and Vest, you have this uh, mold on their windowsill that isn't growing. And it's because penicillin is killing the mold. And they're like, oh, what? I'm going to d- discover what what's happening here. But that observation had been made before then several times when people just saw that and noted it and threw it out because they didn't see what you could what could come from it. And this idea of us coming so close to inventing something and then swerving away at the last minute because we didn't ask the right questions is uh, it's kind of heartbreaking, but it happens repeatedly <laughs> throughout history. Okay, and so if we take this out of the time travel example and we just sort of see it as this book that tells us to invent a whole bunch of things, that's um, <laughs> it's pretty tempting to go outside and start, you know, tying rocks to strings and, and inventing a little water distiller and those sorts of things. Did you, have you tried a lot of these things out? I've tried some of them. Um, some of them, it's uh, like building a kiln. There's a lot of steps involved and you need to collect the clay, but I have collected the clay <laughs> And sort of started purifying clay, which is this fun process where you just you find you can find clay anywhere that anywhere on earth anywhere on earth that humans can live, you can find clays, which is great. And so you just basically just take these rock this this clay from the ground and you start cleaning it. So you put it in water and you mix it up and then you let it precipitate out and you take the the purest stuff that settles and do it again a couple of times. This is we don't see that process anymore because you just, you just buy clay from, I guess, the clay store. <laughs> I don't even know where you buy clay these days, but I imagine potters know. But this this idea of being able to you know walk anywhere in the world and produce clay is kind of empowering. <laughs> like if anything else goes wrong, at least I can build a kiln. And with a kiln, I can make glass and all this stuff spins out from that. So it's the idea of being having that confidence i think is fun (laughs) even if you don't get sent back in time that was ryan north talking about how to rebuild civilization from scratch his book how to invent everything is available from virgin books now thanks for listening to the science focus podcast the october issue of bbc focus magazine is out this week in it we discover how we could leave earth for good and build a new civilization in space. We also speak to a panel of leading female scientists about why there are so few women in science, discover why curry is so good for you, and explore whether machine learning could help shed new light on the problem of male suicide. Find out more at sciencefocus.com. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.